0: One Saturday in 1903 changed baseball construction forever. In fact, it changed sports venue planning forever. The event was a national tragedy. The aftermath of this event led to safer experiences for fans, and that's a fact that we often take for granted today. So let's take a moment and rediscover the events that changed how baseball parks have been constructed. That was Black Saturday, baseball's deadliest disaster. Today, on Rounders A History of Baseball in America. <music> Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Wow. I am so excited to be able to bring you today's topic that we're going to be discussing. You may have wondered, Hey, wait a minute. I didn't get a new podcast that dropped into my feed last week. What's going on, Jeff? You were on a tear. Folks, I do have to apologize. I ended up getting pretty sick last week and I sat in front of the computer And I really tried (laughs) to do a recording of this current episode, and it just did not sound good. I could barely get through a sentence without coughing and hacking, and it sounded horrible. And I said, you know what? I'm going back to bed (laughs) because it was just, it was, it was a really, tough uh, stretch for me there health wise. I'm feeling better though. I'm feeling great. So I do apologize. We didn't have an episode delivered last week, but I think you are going to love the topic that we are discussing today. Before we get into it, just as a, you know, a simple run of the events here, I do want to say thank you. Obviously, first of all, for joining me for the episode, for sticking with me. It means a lot that you've taken the time to be able to tune in. I also want to thank those of you who have taken the time to extend your uh, connection with the show by signing up for the weekly email And for those of you who have decided to extend it even further than that and become a premium uh, subscriber, excuse me, and you decided to support the show financially, I thank you from the bottom of my heart as well. The investment that you're making and growing this show and showing me that we can uh, really make Rounders uh, an even bigger presence in 2022 for promoting the game of baseball and keeping these these very rich stories that only baseball can bring us alive and well in the public mind. So. In case you haven't had a chance, if you want to sign up for the free weekly email, you're going to get links to deeper um, uh, uh, topics that we discuss each week on the podcast. So you can learn more about the topics that we're discussing. You have a chance to provide feedback on poll questions to see else what's going on of interest in the world of baseball. That's a free weekly email that you can get. You just have to go to the site and sign up. Again, if you decide to become a premium subscriber, you can choose a monthly or an annual fee. Each provides different perks. Obviously, the main one is you get access to the free bonus show, which is This Week in Baseball History, where you're going to get a 15- to 20-minute show that covers everything that happened for the current week in terms of baseball history, major events, births, deaths, stories related to historical events that occurred. It's a great way for you to be able to expand You know, just the enjoyment of the game and find out how things all link together uh, from past to present. So I'm really excited about the bonus show. It's been going great. Uh, You get access to that as a premium member. And then if you decide that you want to be that annual member and, you know, put up a larger amount, you get to become almost a direct producer in the show. You're going to help me choose the topics as we go going forward. You're going to have access to, you know, more direct events to be able to um, have more feedback and more say in what's going on. Um, more of a direct access to be able to support what we're doing here. So uh, I would I would say please consider those options. If you don't want to sign up for the email, you get too many emails as it is. If you don't want to sign up for something that's recurring, you can also send me just a one-time tip, a good game tip. That link's right in the show notes. Every little bit helps, folks. I'm really trying to turn this into uh, a side job that I can... Keep and drop something else, you know I, I work two jobs, I have a main job and I have a side job. I would love to be able to do this in a way where I could drop one of the other ones and really devote even more time to growing rounders um, not because I'm doing it for the money, but it certainly helps because it allows me to focus more time during the day on that so anyways, however you decide to support and even if it's just by listening or watching, I appreciate that too that's that means the world to me so thank you now. Let's go ahead and jump into what we're discussing for today, which was the deadliest event in sporting history, specifically happened at a baseball game. And before we get into the history of what occurred, I just want to kind of set the table, folks. And that comes down to just realizing that, yeah, tragedies occur on a regular basis at baseball events. We know this. And this is not something that happened 100 years ago. We see recent events that occurred where people lost their lives at baseball games. Let me give you some examples of that. In 2011, there was a fan that flipped over the front railing at Globe Life Park, which is the home of the Texas Rangers. He was trying to catch a ball that was thrown into the stands by a player, went over the front, ended up dying uh, from his injuries on impact. That was just in 2011. In 2015, the Atlanta Braves uh, had a fan fall from the upper deck at Turner Field. And again, uh, the injuries that he sustained from that resulted in his death. In 2017 at Wrigley Field, there was a fan, he was trying to climb a rail leading to the upper deck and he ended up falling and he died the next day from his injuries. So we see fans losing their lives at ballpark events. And, you know, the question always comes down to after it happens was, could something have been done? You know, how much of this is the ballpark's fault? How much of this is the spectator's fault? And that's always the question that comes up back and forth. Where do you draw the line in terms of liability? And you have all these different factors involved too. You're at an emotionally charged event where people may not be thinking as clearly. You have alcohol involved at these sporting events. So there's that too. It becomes a very murky situation once these tragedies occur. And you try and figure out, well, what can we do to prevent it from happening again? And whose fault is it? So just keep that in mind as we travel back today to June 1903 and discuss this huge disaster that occurred at a ballpark that resulted in a lot of deaths. And think about yourself, who was responsible for this? I'm going to present you the facts, and I would love to hear back from you, and you'll have an opportunity to share that with me if you sign up for the weekly newsletter. So just keep that in mind. But let's go ahead and jump into our episode for today, talking about Black Saturday, the deadliest event in baseball history. You know, when we think about today's ballpark, it's very fan-centric. It's all about the user experience, wanting to create an event that's memorable for the entire family. If you travel back to the 1800s, that certainly was not the case in America's earliest ballparks. If you think about, you know, 19th century ballparks, they were usually just structures that were very hastily constructed. They were built completely out of wood. They were cramped. They were single-deckered structures, you know, there's one level to them. And that was really because it came down to how quickly and how cheaply can we do this? Think about everything that goes into building a ballpark. The expense of acquiring the land, uh, the excavation that it takes to get it ready to go, what building materials are we going to put into it, what are the dimensions of this ballpark. Not only were there no real rules for this in the late 1800s, because you know there wasn't an established order for being able to construct a, a baseball park again, owners were focused on, okay, we have a following, we need a place to house this game instead of you know the town green or maybe uh, a less um, you know a, a lesser type of area where we can't control the flow of the crowd. we got to build a ballpark and so you know early baseball stadiums were not designed for the user they were designed to Just create a venue as quickly and as cheaply as possible to be able to control the flow of the spectators and to charge them for watching the game. You know, we saw, like, for instance, in Chicago, where the Chicago White Stockings played, Lakefront Park. That was made completely of wood, and it only, down the left field line, it only measured 180 feet to the fence. So, again, the the dimensions were just crazy. You look at the polo grounds in New York, It was two baseball fields in one. They had two fields in one area, and that caused all sorts of problems in terms of figuring out dimensions and uh, the area of play. So early ballparks were not uh, any sort of great example of engineering or planning. They were just to meet the demand of, oh, we have a team with the demand for, for watching. Let's put something together. And this was also the case for, we're going to Philadelphia, for the Philadelphia Phillies. You know, in the late 1800s, they did have a ballpark. It was called Recreation Park. It was your classic late 19th century park. It was made out of wood. It was a single-layer stadium. And it was only capable of holding about 6,500 fans. Very small. But see, this is where we see the first evolution in creating a modern ballpark. And that was thanks to the Philadelphia Phillies owner, Alfred J. Reach, who I'm going to refer to as good old AJ from now on. See, uh, AJ Reach realized that Recreation Park was a very hastily constructed eyesore that wasn't going to last very long, and he wanted to build something that would last because he wanted his team to last. And so his dissatisfaction, you know, to his credit, really came down to two things. He looked at his current park and said, this thing is made completely out of wood. If there's a fire that starts, I am done for. Uh, It's also susceptible to rot. That was another concern that he had. How long is this thing going to last for? And the second thing that he was really worried about too was he saw the popularity of his team. More and more people wanted to come see a Phillies game. And he looked at it and said, this is a single-decker stadium. It's not going to last long. As the city grows, can this stadium grow with it? And he definitively decided on both fronts, no, this is not the type of park that I think is going to be good for the long-term future of my club. So. A.J. Reach was the guy who was responsible for really ushering in a thoughtfully planned out stadium presence for professional baseball clubs. So he put up a lot of money for the time period and opened a new stadium in Philadelphia in 1887 called the Philadelphia Baseball Park good name, straight to the point. Like I said, it cost over a $100,000 to build, and it had double the capacity of the original stadiums. It held 12,500 people, so almost double what the original park held. And this was considered the finest ballpark in the nation when it was built in 1887. And it was different from other ballparks because, it yes, it used a lot of wood still, but it also used brick. We had a combination of the two, and it was used throughout, so you had a structure with uh, more um, more durable materials, and it was also a ballpark that offered pavilion seating. Wow, what an evolution, right? So if you sat behind the plate or along the first baseline, you had the luxury of having a covering over your head to keep you safe from the sun when you watched games. So that was a big deal, right? So this park, for all of its um, new features, and it received a lot of press and accolades at the time, it didn't last very long. And I'm building up to the disaster, so stay with me. I want you to understand the progression here of, of ballparks. So this ballpark that was built in 1887, the Philadelphia Baseball Park, it was a step forward in the evolution of parks. But it didn't last very long. As a matter of fact, it only lasted seven years. And ironically, in 1894... Remember, it opened in 1897. That ballpark ended up being pretty much burned to the ground. And remember, he used brick in it because he understood that wood was a concern. That didn't save this this second evolution of a baseball park in Philadelphia, though. There was a fire that started in the stadium, and it cost $250,000. And it pretty much gutted the whole stadium. Uh, There are different accounts of what may have caused the fire, The one that I found that seemed to be the most accepted reason for the fire in this ballpark was there was a a train passing by, and the sparks from the train actually got into the stadium, caused the wood to ignite, and burnt the whole thing down. So Reach had to make a decision. He had built the finest ballpark in the nation. Is he going to rebuild it the way it was, or is he going to use this opportunity to build an even grander structure? And he decided, I'm going to build a more... sophisticated structure out of this, which is what he does. So a year later, (coughs) excuse me, on the on the remnants of his previous park, he opens a new baseball park called National League Park, opens its doors for the 1895 season. Even though it was known as National League Park, the locals still called it the Philadelphia Baseball Park, like the previous generation ballpark. It was also known officially as the Huntington Street Grounds as well. Now this park was even more grandiose than the previous version in certain ways. Let me tell you why. Good old AJ was smart enough to realize that the thing that brought down his second version of a... Uh, updated baseball stadium was the wood, the amount of wood that was used. So we said, you know what? In this third version, this park is going to be mostly built from steel and brick. And again, this is an evolution in baseball stadium design, not only in the materials used, but making a ballpark a set feature in a city, something that's going to grow as the city grows and become a part of the culture and a part of the landscape instead of just a hastily constructed um, you know, building that's there. And A.J. Reach even said, you know, in his writings, quote, this stadium adds so novel and unique a structure to the other ornamental edifices of our beloved city. He wanted the Philadelphia Phillies Stadium to be a part of Philadelphia's culture and fabric as a city. And so you have this beautiful stadium that was built... You know, a double decker pavilion stadium, just like the previous one built from brick and steel, had a very medieval style architecture to it. Really a beautiful stadium. And again, a big step forward in terms of stadium design. And so everything went great. Once this ballpark opened, it was the toast of of the National League. You know, in terms of ballpark design, everybody wanted to see it. Fans were coming out and enjoying their team. There were no problems for about a decade. It was, it was a little over eight years. But then, folks, we fast forward to 1903. This is when we see this deadly event, the deadliest event in sporting history occur. And we're going to look at why it happened. But first, let's talk about what happened. Prior to the 1903 sta- uh, season, this is an important detail, A.J. Reach And the individuals who were part of his ownership group decided to sell the Philadelphia Phillies. They unloaded the team, but he had such an attachment to the structure that part of the deal allowed him and his co-owners to retain ownership of the stadium, even after they sold the team. So please keep that in mind as we move forward, because that is going to cause some liability and lawsuit issues later on, because... The team is owned by a different group than the group that owns the baseball park. So (laughs) you can probably see how that's going to cause some complications. So the 1903 season commences. A.J. Reach is no longer the owner of the team, but the team's doing well. And we're pretty deep into the season. So it's August eighth, nineteen 1903. The Phillies are playing at home in their beloved stadium. They're playing a doubleheader against the Boston Bean Eaters. Still, I think one of the... (laughs) One of the best names in baseball history, to be honest. Now, the Bean Eaters took the first game. So we're in the second game of the doubleheader. And Joe Stanley, who plays for the Boston team, he's at the plate. There's two outs left in the inning. And all of a sudden, he hears a commotion in the outfield of the stadium. There's a bunch of fans that are rushing to the edge of the bleachers. What was happening? All of these fans on the left field line, so along the left field line in the bleachers, and the, towards the outfield, all of these people are running to the top of the bleachers to look over onto the street below. What was causing that commotion? That must have been going through Joe Stanley's mind. Well... On the street next to the stadium outside, there were two drunk guys. They were walking down the street right outside the stadium, and apparently there were a group of children that were following them. And those men were being, uh, I'm sure, uh, verbally (laughs) accosted by this group of kids. And so what supposedly occurred was at some point while they were walking down the street next to the stadium and these kids are following them and making fun of them, maybe throwing stuff at them, who knows, one of the men turns and grabs one of the kids, supposedly one of the girls in the group, by the hair. And when he grabbed her by the hair, he lost his balance and fell on top of her in the street. So... Both these drunk guys are going nuts. All the kids start making all this commotion because it just escalated into a physical altercation. And that child that had her hair pulled was a 13-year-old. Her name was Maggie Berry. She obviously got very upset when this guy pulled her hair and then fell on her. And she started shrieking in terror as well as the other children did. And all the kids started yelling, help, help, and murder, murder. And so this is being, uh, this is all occurring on the street next to the stadium. So the people that are sitting in the bleachers on the left field line are like, what's going on? And so that commotion drew people in the ballpark to go to the top of the bleachers to look over onto the street below to see what was happening. So you have all of these spectators in the park rushing to one place, the top of the bleachers, to see what's happening. Now, on the ballpark, there's an overhanging balcony, right? It's about seven to eight feet wide, and it came out about three feet from the wall. And notice I said wood. This area of the park was constructed out of wood unlike the brick and steel that we saw throughout most of the stadium. So you have hundreds of people rushing to the edge of this wooden bleacher, right? Now, according to the newspaper accounts at the time, the estimates were that 300 people had jammed onto this balcony to witness the altercation that was occurring on the street below, which was about 30 feet down from the top of that balcony the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think they said it best. This was the account from their story that ran the next day. Picture it with me. Quote, suddenly jammed with an immense vibrating weight, the balcony tore itself loose from the wall, and the crowd was hurled headlong to the pavement. Those who felt themselves falling grasped those behind, and they in turn held on to others. Behind were thousands still pushing up to see what was happening. In the twinkling of an eye, the street was piled four deep with bleeding, injured, shrieking humanity struggling amid the piling debris." Quote. I'll give you a minute to process that. That's crazy. Just to think about that recounting, all those people falling off the balcony, grabbing people behind them, falling to the street 30 feet below, having construction debris fall on top of you as you fall. To give you another quote, an eyewitness account from this event when it happened, one of the police officers on the scene, his name was Sergeant Bartle. This is what he told reporters that was also recounted in this article. He said, quote, there must have been 100 men and boys and every one of them was covered in blood. Some of them had their clothing almost torn from their bodies, while others were so bespattered with blood and mud as to be almost recognizable. Under the debris were the forms of those who were unconscious. You could not tell whether they were dead or alive. Timber, rubbish, and bricks were piled everywhere. So this is the event that occurred at this game on August 8, 1903. What was the aftermath of all of these people falling off this balcony that was ripped off the wall and caused this accident to occur? 232 people suffered injuries from this event. 12 people died. The youngest person who died from this event was a boy named William J. Graham. I guess I shouldn't really call him a boy. He was 24 years old. A young man lost his life. He was the youngest fatality. The oldest victim that lost his life was an Edward Williamson. He was a 63-year-old Civil War veteran who had attended the game. He actually had been wounded at the Battle of Antietam. And... He endured incarceration at the Confederacy's notorious Andersonville prison. If you haven't ever read about Andersonville prison, I would encourage you to Google that. That is also an excellent—well, I shouldn't say excellent. That is a—it's an eye-opening story uh, of survival for Union troops that occurred during the Civil War at a prison camp. Um, So there you have it. You have a a wide range of individuals who lost their lives in this event, certainly even more injured. What happened— Once this event occurred, the game was still going on, right? Well, the game stopped immediately as soon as the bleachers collapsed, obviously. And there was a major commotion that started to happen. Everybody started panicking because you had a major incident where the park gave way and you saw people falling to their injury or death. So... Other spectators that were in the left field bleachers and started to see it collapse, they started jumping onto the field because they were scared the rest of the ballpark was collapsing. You saw a mass exodus to the exits, people trying to escape, also worried that the whole ballpark might be coming down. The baseball players were concerned, those on the field and in the dugouts, and there were several accounts that players actually armed themselves with bats so they wouldn't be overwhelmed by the mass of spectators trying to rush for the exits. The game was obviously immediately canceled. And that, folks, is e- this is a, a quick recap of what happened on that fateful night. Now, we're going to take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the aftermath of this event. Who was at fault? What was decided by the courts? What is the legacy of this event where we saw 12 people lose their lives? Stay with me. We'll be right back to discuss it. Hey everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the baseball history podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, including our newest show, This Week in Baseball History, where we take a look at the major stories that happened throughout baseball's past and how they relate to America's pastime today. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, we have an annual plan that will save you money over the monthly fee. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting 9 tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Wow, so much has happened in this show already. I'm emotionally exhausted just retelling the story. We had the worst event in sporting history, uh, the worst event certainly in baseball history uh, in terms of spectator uh, stadium deaths. We saw a situation where along the left field line, the bleachers giving way uh, due to commotion that was occurring outside the stadium. We saw over 200 people injured. We saw 12 people lose their lives. Utter chaos breaking out inside this jewel of professional baseball. This is supposedly modern ballpark, right? That was supposed to be, you know, modern and safer and a place where you could... Go with confidence to be able to watch a baseball game. Well, the unthinkable just happened. So now that time has gone by, a couple days have passed, what was the aftermath? What was the press saying? What were the people who were involved saying? What was the team saying? What were the owners of the ballpark saying? It's very interesting. Now, remember, before I jump into this, I just want to call back to the beginning of the episode. If you remember, I told you that we had a situation where we had the owner of the Philadelphia Phillies who had built the first two iterations of the ballpark. Remember that? Alfred J. Reach, good old AJ. He sold the Philadelphia Phillies prior to this season uh, in his ownership group. They sold the the rights to the team, but they kept the rights to the, the baseball stadium. So, who's at fault for this? Now, disaster strikes, as always, a uh, blame-shifting game immediately ensues. You know, who's at fault? And getting the courts involved, and this was no exception. So, uh, we saw the Philadelphia Phillies business manager, his name was William Shetzlin. He was in charge of ballpark operations at the time of the incident, and he issued a statement immediately and said that the owners of the baseball club, uh, we've asserting our claim that we have no culpability in this matter. This is not our fault. And there was a statement written on behalf of the owners of the team that said, quote, "'The accident was in no way due to any lack of proper precautions or neglect on the part of the officials of the club. When the present management assumed control of the grounds, the pavilion and stands were in perfect condition and for the purposes intended were safe and reliable.'" But the simultaneous rush of several hundred persons to one concentrated point weakened the structure and precipitated several hundred unfortunate persons to the street below. Over-anxiety on their part resulted in this regrettable accident. So immediately you see the Philadelphia Phillies trying to distance themselves from any sort of responsibility. Oh, it was the fault of the fans all going to one place. There's no way to prevent that type of thing from happening. It's not our fault. (laughs) We also had the president of the club, James Potter. Uh, of the president of the Philadelphia Phillies, come forward and say, quote, I feel that no precaution was omitted on the part of the company to protect the patrons. It was one of those unfortunate accidents that occur when large amounts of people actuated by a common impulse do something they're not expected to do, end quote. So you immediately see the Phillies trying to distance themselves from this event. And we also saw on the other side, the owners of the ballpark, different group, remember, A.J. Reach's group, really try to distance themselves from responsibility, too. The co-owner, principal co-owner of that ownership group with A.J. Reach, his partner, was a gentleman named John I. Rogers. He was the co-owner, like I said. He issued a statement a day after the event. He was actually on vacation in New Jersey, came back to be able to issue the statement. So you have the owners of the ballpark now saying, quote, And he made a very long statement. I'm going to pull a specific sentence from it, which I thought was very telling. So this is what he had to say in his statement. Quote, one thing is for certain, the mad rush of an excited crowd suddenly jumping to the balcony and pushing everything irresistibly before it would have crushed any similar structure, no matter how strongly or recently built. It was a football center rush multiplied indefinitely that few, if any walls could have withstood, end quote. So immediately after the event, we see the owners of the baseball club and the owners of the stadium immediately trying to say, you know what, this is an act of God. This is something out of our control. There's no way we could have prevented this. So was that the end of it? No, it was not. As a matter of fact, more than 80 lawsuits were filed against well i 'm going to go through who it was against in a second, but more than eighty lawsuits were filed stemming from the event now the suits they they ranged in terms of who was at fault. Some were targeted specifically at the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Some of them included the Phillies organization and the Philadelphia Baseball Club, which was the group that owned the stadium so both sides are being uh, sought out for damages right so the estimates uh, that were made from looking at all these lawsuits, uh, the the estimates around them said that the damages altogether equaled about a million dollars. Now, if we put that into 2022 terms, if we type that into the inflation calculator from 1903 till then, uh, a million dollars in today's standards would be about $33 million. So that amount, the combination of all these lawsuits, was certainly enough to put the Philadelphia Phillies out of existence easily. So you have all these lawsuits that are lining up against the club, against the owners of the stadium. And, you know, again, the the lawsuits really focused on negligence. It was negligence of the previous ownership group. It was negligence of the current ownership group. And to prove that point, most of these lawsuits obviously focused on things like the condition of the balcony made out of wood, not supported properly. That was the fault of both groups. There weren't enough security officers that were hired to control the crowds. That's the fault of the ownership group. So what about a safe passageway for customers to be able to escape instead of them all being stuck on the top of that, that, um, that bleacher area? And so these were all points that were brought up in the various lawsuits against the team and the ownership group. Uh, So what happened? Well, there was a very strong belief that that balcony that ran along left field along 15th Street at the ballpark was in a state of disrepair, that there had been some rotting that occurred, that some of the timbers were not as solid uh, as other parts of the park would be. So that was something that went in favor of the plaintiffs, that revelation. The plaintiffs also had said, again, that those timbers uh, were not adequately inspected, that there wasn't a process that had been put in place by A.J. Reach's ownership group to make sure that the wood parts of the ballpark were continually in good standing condition. And so something like a transfer of weight by that many people It wasn't the weight, it was the rot of the wood that was uh, brought into question. So, you know, overall, a lot of questions are being asked that we take for granted today that didn't really exist then, like inspection of ballparks on a regular basis. Where does the city get involved in terms of inspection? These were all questions that there were no answers really to at this point, but they're things we take, obviously, you know, as an accepted thing that occurs nowadays it wasn't there yet. So all of these lawsuits, they went into the court system, took about 6 years to resolve these these lawsuits. And they went all the way to the US Supreme Court. It was a it was a tough issue because it was the first time something of this magnitude was being dealt with. So what happened with these lawsuits? Did the plaintiffs end up winning who was at fault? Well, the Supreme Court largely for the, you know, for the large majority accepted the defense that was offered by the owners of the team and the owners of the stadium, and they ruled ultimately that it was the extraordinary number of the fans that all went to one location where they shouldn't have all gone at one point that was the cause of the accident, and that was not the ball club's fault or the ballpark's owner's fault, and both sides were completely absolved of all blame and financial responsibility. There were no financial rewards that came out of this for any of the plaintiffs. They ruled completely in favor of the team and the ballpark owners. A sad ending, I think, to those who have lost lost their lives and the families left behind. There was no monetary compensation for what occurred. But there there is a legacy that lasts from this horrible event that we can certainly say, did bring some good things with it. And that really came down to the ballparks that we enjoy today. This event had a profound influence on stadium construction. We're talking about the materials that were used. We saw this park use steel and brick to a large extent, more so than any other park at the time period. But after this event, we saw new stadiums begin to use reinforced concrete as a main material for ballparks. We saw ferro concrete used more and more to be able to handle these larger crowds that were coming to the ballpark. <clears throat> Just six years later, in 1909, Shibe Park opened for the Philadelphia Athletics. This park was constructed uh, mostly of concrete. Would this have happened without the Philadelphia ballpark disaster? I wonder. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, there, there had to be a direct correlation between the materials used or else they would have chosen the cheaper materials. And I think that that stemmed from wanting to create a safer experience and to not be liable if something like that were to happen, you know, in Philadelphia's situation. And of course, that started the ball rolling for other clubs as well, where when new stadium constructions came up, there was a standard that started to be set And we see that start to happen, too, not only in baseball, but also the inspection side of things, the the legal side of things, the city oversight and the state oversight. So we saw after this event in Philadelphia, Philadelphia's own building inspection laws were fundamentally changed. They became more rigorous. They uh, were required to hold inspections more often, especially in places where there were public gatherings. And the building inspection agency for the city of Philadelphia doubled in size as a result of this disaster as a way to say, you know what, we need to take this more seriously. We have to update the frequency of inspections. We have to tighten the rules and make sure that we're enforcing them. So this really, if you look at this event that occurred in Philadelphia, it was a teaching point for private and public officials to really say, you know what? As we have larger and larger structures, especially for public attendance, we have to make sure that these structures are safe and that they're held to a certain level of accountability. And that has held on, and we reap the benefits of that, the modern ballpark ban, where we are in structures that are mostly safe, that are governed by rules both by the MLB and by city and state officials in terms of building code and, and safety measures. But baseball is still struggling with this. This hasn't gone away. There are questions now about ballpark safety and how can the experience be made even more uh, protective for the fans that are showing up. Let me give you an example. If you remember at the beginning of the episode, I talked about some modern incidents where fans lost their lives at parks. Well, that event that happened at Wrigley Field, where we had the individual trying to crawl up the rail to the upper deck, end up falling to his death. That was a tragedy. And what we saw out of that was we saw an individual named Jake Pauls. Who was a building safety consultant, he started to advocate the MLB to set a standard of forty two inches for all railings in MLB ballparks and he said that should be a bare minimum for safety and he came with up with that forty two inch rail height number by saying the average American uh, individual is five foot nine excuse me the average American male is five foot nine so setting a forty two inch rail height would reach the stomach of the average American and prevent hopefully other Incidents of somebody falling over. We haven't seen that recommendation taken in across the board, but the MLB is considering setting a minimum standard. And it really comes down to protecting these teams and owners against liability because in each of these situations where fans have fallen over, the railing has not met that 42 inch standard. As a matter of fact, there's a lawsuit against the Braves right now for that fan that ended up falling over because there's in the international building code, also a recommendation that all railing should be 42 inches where there's a fall height of 30 inches. So it didn't meet that standard. So it comes down to the MLB deciding, do we want to set a specific standard for railing height? We'll see what happens with that. And it really comes down to a balance, right? How do we not obstruct views of the spectators, but how do we keep them safe at the same time? So railing height is one thing that the MLB is dealing with. The other one we've heard for years has been netting. This has really happened on several different occasions. How much netting do we put around the park to protect fans from foul balls or from home runs or things like that? So we've seen different parks do different things, you know. and there's also been a push for, we should standardize this. Let's extend the netting down past the dugouts. Uh, let's make sure that ballparks have netting all the way down the fall line, the foul line, excuse me. Uh, but there hasn't been a standardized rule for that yet. We see minor league ballparks also even finding themselves in more, uh, territory for something happening because minor league ballparks tend to have more social, uh, leaning events to be able to get people to come out to enjoy the games. So, you know, kids playing on grassy areas in the outfield. Uh, And if a hard foul ball gets hit down the line, that could be a, an individual that uh, ends up losing his life because of it. So what do you do with netting? That's another question. Um, My research assistant, Cass, who, who is uh, playing in the minor leagues, he said in his own time traveling that he's witnessed three individuals get drilled by foul balls. Um, And so it is a concern and it does happen on a regular basis. So what do you do with netting? Ballpark security is another area where the question is, again, how do you balance the fan experience with their safety? Uh, In 2020, there was an incident at Fenway Park where there was an an individual who snuck into a game, and we saw that that also led to an increase in ballpark security to be able to deal with those types of situations. So it really comes down to that question of how do we balance fan safety versus enjoyment for the game? But we see those questions being asked as a result of what happened in Philadelphia for that 1903 game. And if we can take anything from that incident, is that it established the need for us to really think through how do we create experiences that a fan can enjoy while at the the same time being relatively safe while enjoying the sport that we all love. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember, I'd love to hear back from you. You can connect with me on social media at Rounders Podcast. You can send me an email at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a voicemail and I'll answer your questions on our weekly mailbag. You can leave me a one-time tip. You can sign up as a monthly premium subscriber. You can sign up for the free newsletter. All of these things are important because they help us work together to be able to grow independent sports media. And we can kind of stick it to those out-of-touch corporate sports monopolies, right? So overall, thank you so much for tuning in for today's show. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.